0: Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Nico Fuentes for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is February 11th, 2018, and this is being recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello. Hello. How are you doing tonight?
1: I am tired from work. A little bit damp. <laughs> the weather's been terrible, but for all intents and purposes, I'm well.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, you mentioned uh, you had a, a action yesterday. Yeah. Action. What was that?
1: Direct action gets the goods. Um, so we strategized on we've been strategizing on who is we uh me and my coworkers and the RWDSU who um is who we voted in as union rep- like our who, union representation Where is your she work? I work at the Pleasure Chest in the Upper East Side. Um the Pleasure Chest is a um sex shop. It's one of the oldest in New York. It started in 1971. And uh, last year we voted for union representation. We unanimously voted for union representation, which is a key um, thing about our campaign that's a little bit special. Yeah, Um, so we have been in the struggle for a fair contract. Um, Yesterday on the 10th, we had a tabling event outside of both stores. Um, Staff that wasn't scheduled that day showed up to both locations. We had some solidarity from another union, um, and we handed out valentines um, to um, the public and asked them to... Engage in sending the workers Valentine's. So it's a two-part. It was a launch of an online campaign uh, for people to get in touch with the workers to send us Valentine's. You know, things that workers at the Pleasure Chest like to hear is, you deserve fair wages. You deserve minimum staffing on the sales floor. You deserve... Safety trainings, de-escalation trainings, privilege and boundary trainings, um, which are key things that we've been asking for um, for about a year now in the contract negotiations. Um, our employer, Brian Robinson, who owns the company, um, has this far been is playing very hard to get, if you will. They're putting it very, very nicely. Um, he decided to lawyer up with Jackson Lewis, which is one of the U.S.'s largest, meanest, most notorious law firms, and most expensive. Um, which is actually just a testament to how powerful um, it is that it, the power that we hold collectively at the pleasure chest. Yeah. Well, I'm going back up
0: and ask you lots of questions about how you got to this point, but um, I really want to hear a lot more about that campaign and sure. the in there. So. Um, Uh, Where did you grow up?
1: So I'm originally from West Texas. Um, I am from a small town called Pecos, Texas. Um, It's in the Permian Basin near Big Bend. Um, That's where my family has always been from. Um, And when I was younger, um, we moved to Houston, which was um, how kind of my immediate family, my parents and my sisters, how we kind of got exposure to middle class aspiring um life for a mexican family um so i spent a lot of time in houston in north houston um all my summers in west texas with my grandmother and my 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 very large family um and then i lived a little bit in um, austin for college and also i lived a little bit in oklahoma for high school
0: How old were you when you moved to
1: Houston? I, oh, I was really young. I was about three. And we initially moved actually to uh, Laredo, Texas, um, right on the border and spent some time there. And when I was five, we moved to Houston. And I was there till up until I was 15. I'm 27 now. Um, In which we, me and my dad relocated to Oklahoma. Um I went to Oklahoma State University for a while, dropped out of there, wasn't feeling it. It was a really toxic place for me um and then I found myself in Austin around um turning twenty one spent time there, and then made my way to New York and I was like twenty three um what are uh, what are some early memories you have? Early memories that I have would be the desert um The desert. Yeah. The smell, the smell of what it smells like in the desert right before it rains. It's exquisite. It smells like minerals. Um, I remember eating dirt. (laughs) Um, the clay in West Texas tastes really good. Um, just really just tastes like the way you think that the earth would taste like, um, I remember my grandmother's kitchen, my abuela. Um, Music, lots of music. I remember my sisters. I was really adored by them. They doted on me a lot. They're like eight and nine years older than I am, so there's a big difference between us. They doted on me a lot. Um, My grandfather is no longer alive being in his truck. I remember that a lot. Those are early memories.
0: So your family is Mexican? Yes. And has lived in, uh, West Texas? West Texas. For a very long time.
1: Pretty much, I mean, so-called Mexican. Uh, I mean, that's a really long, complicated colonial history. I mean,
0: Texas it, was Mexico.
1: Texas was Mexico, but Mexico ago. is an imperial project right, right. Um, and indigeneity exists. And um, I think currently in my life I'm navigating what that means and how I relate relate to that. that the fact that my family has always been there and what that actually means um, in the context of this imperial project. Um, but yeah, that's where m- most of my family still in West Texas. I'm very far. <laughs> I'm one of the few who's this far away. Um, but yeah.
0: I feel like West Texas is a place that a lot of New Yorkers, if they know anything about it, know about it through music. Yeah.
1: Um, through music. I think a lot of people know about the rodeo. My hometown is, like, the, is billed as the first, where the first rodeo happened. Um, Tejano music is, like, from that area. I mean, Corpus Christi is not very far where Selena was was born. Um, and the image of, I think, the tumbleweed and all of that is actually an aspect of West Texas that I think the North, a northeasterner would understand and think about
0: so you went to uh college in oklahoma a bit
1: yeah i did um it was terrible um it was such a confusing time for me i mean i would say being somebody that was read as like probably gender nonconforming, you know who was very who i occupied a, i looked very confusing to people I was constantly misgendered. I was actually correctly misgendered a lot. And then people would like be like, oh, I'm sorry. You are not a woman maybe. And which led to like these weird dynamics of it in, in existing in that place. And Oklahoma such a, it's such a specific history. That's race. There is so uh, uh, the racial dynamics. There are so palpable, um and your the way that you, people of color move through space there is just so it's i think of it being surreal i do i i i, I mean i w- it was almost a caricature of what people think of like the south being but i was a freshman in college and i was like chased by like these de- like rednecks in a truck you know like this type of like intense especially in the more rural parts of Oklahoma you know I went to Oklahoma State so that's in Stillwater which is just a college town with not a lot the the university is the only thing that's going on there in in a, in a sense um so the dynamics with people who have been like from there and my body my precarity um being legibly trans and also being legibly brown just, or allegedly non-white was visceral Um, so I got really sick I had a really like massive depressive episode, like went through this, you know, my first year there was just so hard and um, I was going to school, you know it was this whole, I'm gonna become a doctor you know the academy, like academia was really like Com- like it was compelling to me at the time and um but I ended up dropping out because I was so sick tell me yeah. tell me about being sick yeah I mean I was so that's one of the most isolating times in my life um in high school I I kind of found some way to inha- like occupy space I went to a, a really conservative right-wing christian school which was a lot of different things was a really violent experience and you know the just even like my relationship even now to like uniforms and dress codes is like really directly related and like my trauma around in for like really enforced dress codes and having a body that was you know i had breasts i had I was like not lean and not tall and white and not blue eyed, you know. I really, and there was only me and like two other people of color in like my class. And so uh, coming from that and then going into a college experience and going into a college experience that I didn't want was enormously isolating, enormously isolating, and not having. Um, never learning skill sets on how to, never being provided sk- a skill set on how to just, on the basics of like being a student in a, in a university setting or like, um, I excelled in, in high school, but it was this, there was just this total disillusionment when I got in, uh, when I started going to school there. Um, so I started taking um, like sleeping pills because I was having insomnia. I was just really sick. Really, really sick, and um, frankly, very suicidal. And still, even at that point, didn't have language to say that you know I'm trans. Um, didn't have language. I didn't know. Didn't have language for queerness. I didn't have a. I knew gay and lesbian. My oldest sister is a lesbian. Um, I had language for that, but nothing. No gender variance. I mean, I guess I kind of knew. Vaguely of trans people, because when of growing up, I, I was exposed to, or like had access to a trans woman who was a very close friend of my sister's. Um, but it was very much, I'm not that. Yeah, which does a number on your, your only a, mentally emotional
0: trans woman <gasps> who is in your life. She
1: is amazing. She is amazing. She's she's doing great. She's beautiful. She lives in Los Angeles. Um, but since my sisters are older than me, um, they were, I mean, they were in like middle school and high school when I was a child. And my parents um, w- were very liberal in the sense of accepting people into our home, but very conservative in the way that me and my sisters expressed ourselves. But um, my growing up there was a lot of people always at the house my sisters always had like friends over and like it was a very like open environment for um people to come to us um and one of my sister's best friends even to this day she it was probably be- i mean i don't want to clock her ship but it was probably before her transition you know she was in high school um and one of my earliest memories of engaging with transness was um I was such a nosy little brat, and I like hated when my sisters closed the doors and like locked them. We like we didn't have a really a household dynamic like that, so I would always try and barge in. And I barged in one day when my sister, I guess they were getting ready for like a party or something, um, and I barged in, and my sister is like putting on clothes, and her friend is putting on on breasts, and, <laughs> and I was. It wasn't something that shocked me. It was just like I felt a sense of, uh, oh, you're getting ready, but you're putting on on breasts. Um, I didn't have any sort of language or concept of that, and I think I think she screamed, and I was like, oh, and then my sister was like, get out or something, yelled at me. I was probably like ten or something, um, and I I just. I was. I accepted her. I I knew who she was. She was a part of my life. Um, I'm sure she she saw me. I haven't talked to her in a really long time, but I'm certain that she saw me, a little transsexual me. Um, but yeah,
0: yeah. You mentioned planning to be a doctor when you went <laughs> to college. <laughs> yes. um, what had your parents been to college? What was what kind of jobs did they
1: do? No, my parents never went to college. Oh, yeah. um, my friends are in college educated. Uh, oh, my mom went to a stenography school, which she's really proud of, and I'm really proud of her for that, too. Um, That's a skill. Academic opportunities in our hometown were non-existent, so there was this... For my parents, I think it was this enormous push to get us to college. Right, right. Um, this is, like, that classic Mexican-American class story of, like, pushing for something more. Um my dad, um, so big business in West Texas is oil, so my dad worked at, like at the Penn's Oil or something in West Texas and got involved and was able to like move around through the oil Did business.
0: He work in the field, or was he an office He's, worker? He or? started
1: off in the field. Um, that's his like whole narrative is how he he was actually a child laborer, um, and then started actually delivering burritos. Um, to field workers when he was a teenager and then when he was like 18 he started working in the field and then from there he went around when my sister when my oldest sister um, that must have been in like the late 70s early 80s um, got an office job and kind of was pulled up by I don't really know the details but was I, I assume was pulled up by some of the white men around him and kind of groomed in this way because he was like, according to my mom was just a very sociable person, had really good, um, just connected well with people. Um, and he found a skill in that. And that was like how, yeah, that's how like we even ended up in Houston. Cause that was, he got his job at Enron.
0: Right. <laughs> and your mom, did she
1: work? My mom worked a little bit. So my grandmother um, owns a flower shop in our hometown. Um, So my mom spent all of her time working with my grandmother. Um, But around the time that I was born, she stopped working. She worked again. She worked more like receptionist jobs. When my dad um, started working at Enron, he kind of pulled her through. And she was a receptionist, for an executive receptionist for a while until... And Ron collapsed. (laughs) Um, yeah. Did your family make it through that? All right. Um, I mean, that is a time that I don't really, I didn't understand. I think they, they kept a lot from me. Um, they, I must, I'm assuming they must've lost so much. I mean, they lost their entire retirement, like everything, like all those people did. Um, so that was really bad. It was a really, really, and that's actually how we ended up moving to Oklahoma. Because my dad was looking, everybody was looking for work at that time. Um, and somebody in Oklahoma wanted him. So, um, yeah, that was a really, really, really bad time.
0: How did you end up leaving that region? Uh, which region?
1: Yeah, of Oklahoma
0: and West Texas.
1: Um. So I was...
0: In Central Texas. You were in Austin.
1: Probably. Yeah, I was in Austin yeah. for a little bit. So when I was in Austin, I was like... It was total self-discovery. I had moved away from my family. I was, like, expressing my gender variance and, like, really just in my early... Tw- like, that phase of your life when you're in your early 20s and, like, exploring, like, putting on makeup, like, wearing caftans and, like, just finding a sense of self. Um, and I started getting involved in fashion, um, like the local fashion scene and vintage fashion scene. And I was like really, really into fashion. I loved, and I still do, this is something that I still love about fashion, but just like the, just how clothes, the material can affect your body and your attitude and all of these things. Um, and, Everybody that I was around was finishing up college. All my friends were at UT for design, and um, it was just something that one of my mentors at the time was just like, you know, this is this can become a thing for you know, you can, I, be a stylist or you can be like go work in casting for models and stuff, and it was like that was seemed like the only thing that I could do. Um, The language around. Me at the time was like, well, you're creative. You're a creative. They're going to get you there. New York will understand you. Um, Because I experienced a lot. I experienced so many enormous roadblocks in employment in Texas. You know, like nobody would give me a job. The grocery stores wouldn't give me a job. The like freaking ice cream store. I still remember all the freaking places that I applied to that wouldn't give me a job, which was just like literally ice cream scooper. Couldn't get a job. Um, and so it was, like, everybody pushing me to, like, you gotta go, you gotta get out of here was the thing. And I felt that, too. I felt, I was, like, I, I'm, like, I felt, like, um, under a microscope, you know, holding all these different gazes, actually, was what it was. I was, you know, really struggling to, like, push through and, and really struggling in my, in my becoming, um. And how would
0: people read your gender at that time
1: at that time de- definitely gender nonconforming. conforming i like sh- had shaved my head i was wearing like lipstick earrings caftan but i wasn't in i didn't even have the language to say that i was like trans um until one day i was at a party and somebody asked me what my pronouns were and it blew my mind I was like drunk at a party in Austin and I was just like my pronouns. What do you mean?
0: What year is this?
1: Oh God. I must, I was like 20. I don't, I don't know what year is that. Um, yeah. 20, 2010, 2011. Um, and I was so, my mind was blown and I'm still in contact with the person that asked me that question and it was like, I, I literally asked him, I was like, what do you mean? What are my pronouns? And he was like, well, you know, like, do you, when referred to, she, her, he, him, they? And I was like, they? Like, what? Like, no. Like, and it just, that just speaks to how, like, n- not exposed I was to any sort of, of anything trans. And then uh, at the time, Tumblr was so huge. And so I started getting it. I got on Tumblr. This was like 2010. And just that's when everything opened for me was finding people. Um, somebody really important to me was um, Mark Aguhar, who is, was is has passed, um, but they were an incredible trans artist. Incredible. And they saw me and they're like, you and on the internet and we became pen pals. they ended up taking their life, um, but their the work that they made is incredible. Where
0: were they living?
1: Um, Chicago, I believe. Um and that really affected me when Mark left. It really, really affected me, and was a moment that I, <clears throat> the precarity seemed to me, like, how I under things clicked about transness when Mark left. Um, but yeah.
0: So everyone is telling you you have to get out. You're not getting jobs anywhere. We are starting to connect with mm-hmm. transness
1: mm-hmm. so my friend had moved to New York a bunch of different people that I knew had like graduated from UT and were like okay like they moved to New York to start their jobs and I was just like, oh my god dreaming about like going to New York or like whatever just anywhere but there and was still just you know a spiraling mess <laughs> It was just so like also still sick and um, putting, piecing together who I was and who I am still. Um, and one of my friends had, was, and we were all so excited, had, um, got a job at Vice. So, um, he like worked his way around Vice, um, and ended up, um, contacting me and was like, Can you send a short video of you, like, talking about yourself to me? And he was like, it's for a casting. And I did. And um, I ended up getting cast in this huge AT&T campaign, which was, like, the it's on record as one of the, like, most profitable online and TV and net campaigns in history, which is really kind of crazy. Um, but essentially what, what happened was, um, they cast me in it. Um, we filmed this like commercial and then they came back for South by Southwest. And then they were like, we want to pitch you, like, we want you to, we're going to pitch you for a show. So I was like, what the, like, what the hell? Like AT&T. AT&T. It was this really weird camp. It was called... The Mobile Movement? Or something? (laughs) Um, and it was, like... I didn't see this coming. yeah, Yeah. It was wild. And it was, like, the Mobile Movement, and it was, like, following youth across the U.S. And, um... It was sponsored by AT&T, and, like, Vice shot it in the very Vice way that they do, which is, like, very new media, and, like, fresh, and, like, gritty, and, like, like young, and um, my... The video that they released on YouTube of me got the most views, and then, yeah, so then they were like, we're gonna film this pilot, and so... It was South by Southwest. I met, like, all these people. Like, they brought these people who were also in the campaign to meet in Austin. We filmed this thing. It was so weird. Um, and then they gave me a check for it, and I moved to New York. Um, yeah, and that was can we, three years ago. Can someone go watch this I, mobile Maybe. Mobile? I don't. Watch you. Oh. I haven't looked for it in a while. Um but I'm sure it has to exist online. I mean, everything still exists online. Um, they, like, I have a lot of feeling. I mean, Vice is trash. But, I mean, what I learned through that experience was extraction. Tell us about that. Um, it was, oh, so I get to New York, and then they're, like, the producers contacted me. And they were, like... So we found out that you're in New York, like, how's it going? And that was like a part of my like plot line, I guess. And they were like, we're going to pitch another show. And are you interested in working with a really big name in fashion? And I was like, okay, I was trying to find a job, like whatever. And so I um, go to this, they don't tell me who it is. They just say, this is like a really legendary fashion figure. And I go and I meet and it's um, this guy named Nicola Formichetti who used to do all of Lady Gaga's creative direction and styling. And I grew up when Gaga was like so huge. So I was just like, whatever. Um, and they ended up filming this like basically a pilot for a reality TV show, but they didn't tell me. So it was a lot of like emotional manipulation to get reactions from me and just this really awful awful experience that was really exploitative and Nicola ended up offering me a job afterwards after it and we he didn't want the show to happen I didn't want the show to happen and it never happened device so I dodged that bullet but that was when I really realized how they really pushed me to and they were saying it was a documentary but it wasn't and they were really pushing for reactions they were pushing for they kept telling me more looks more looks we want you to look like more like clothes like more clothes and like feeding me alcohol so I'd be more sensitive to like things and getting me like reactions from me flying me to LA to film this like music video it was literally it was one of the wildest experiences of my life um, but the lens from which they were doing it was so exploitative and I didn't get paid much for it either. So that's when I was like, oh shit, new media <laughs> fashion.
0: Yeah, that certainly connects to a lot of analysis and thinking coming out of trans communities these days. Yeah. All the... Social buzz, like, when does it translate into actual benefit for people?
1: Yep. I mean, I... So, in 2000... So, three, I guess, three years ago, it was, like, this... I felt like I walked into this moment where trans exploded. It was, like... We, everybody... My peers, we were getting cast in fashion shows. We were, like... I was filming this this thing... Um, you know, there was like trans girls on the come up in the underground art scene, and like in the like mainstream nightlife scene, and you know, I was being featured in like Vice and ID magazine and these things, and like it was such a for it was such a moment to come into New York um, and experience that and be a part of. Um, but I knew after that experience with Vice, I knew something did not sit right. And I knew that this and that working in fashion, I realized how like trends are like and the way that people's bodies are become commodified and um and I had this really deep sense of this is gonna this bubble's gonna pop, and what's gonna happen to all of us when um trans stops trending, and I think that at least in my perspective, we're seeing that now, and uh.
0: So you started working in fashion. Yeah. Tell, what was that like?
1: (laughs) Fashion is is a trip. Um, This is, I mean, fashion, I, my friends would say that, you know, I was probably had a very much different rose tinted glasses view of what I thought fashion was versus what it is. Um. It is a deeply exploitative industry. Um, I was constantly having to work for free in order to be to get work, um, and was constantly overworked on sets for like hours and hours with no sort of like process accountability process. Um, the level that I was working at and who I was working for, I was exposed to a lot of really intense class dynamics you know we're talking about people like nicola who are millionaires you know millions of dollars with disposable income yet you're sitting there like struggling to buy your coffee or whatever like running around getting somebody coffee or like lifting 20 pound bags of garments that cost thousands of dollars and you're like how how am i struggling to get paid um or just seeing the ways that models are treated and how people's bodies are exploitated. And I was so crestfallen by the, that I, what I had thought was going to be fashion was intelligence. I thought there was going to be um, critical thought. I thought that there would be all of these things that I saw that are few and far between, if any, within the industry. Um, it's all class. It's all class. And you, it's, it's a material sense of class when you walk into a room and your shoes aren't the right season or you are at Condé Nast and an editor is like, can you clean up this plate from my table? And you're like, okay, I'm, guess I'm cleaning up your food. Um, but yeah, that was a, it's a visceral way to that I like came to understand like my position in New York
0: I've uh, in having conversations with people about my research in apparel uh, there's so many queer and trans people mm, coming to New York to work in apparel, to work in fashion, Mm. getting exploited in a variety of ways Mm -hmm. in their experience in fashion Yeah, and yet um, you know yearning towards it and finding unstable exploited niches in it, mm, right mm-hmm. I, I, I just I, uh, broadly tell us a little bit about trans people in in fashion in New
1: York, so it's still trans people are still i think pushing to i representation um visibility um and there's still I, I've i met a lot of girls recently who've moved to the city and who are like, I'm here to be a model um, because there was such an intense moment two or three years ago where like girls were just getting cast left and right. Um, and I've seen how like neoliberal advertising has become, you know, gender has become a part of people's, like, everyday dealings in a way that they think that they haven't engaged... that they think that they haven't engaged with. Um, So we're talking about, you know, brands that are, like... where they're casting a boy wearing a dress, a cis man wearing a dress, and that's, like, that's the gender... the way that they grapple with gender or whatever. Um, But I think that what it has to do with is... A drive to be seen community wise um, because our resources are so limited our media representation is limited Um, and New York seems to be a place that it's like that's the narrative about it. it in terms of like people who come here for fashion it's like where you go to be noticed to be discovered these words that are like to me now, deeply problematic. Um, but yeah, I that's what I would say is, is it's a yearning to be seen. Yeah.
0: How did you end
1: up working at Babel rent So I was not getting work in fashion, paid work at least. Um, and I was like, shit, I have to pay rent. Um, So I... Um responded to an ad on this like facebook group it was like a queer workers i don't even think it was called queer workers i don't know it was a it was a facebook employment thing queer employment it it might be the same one yeah Yeah. yeah it may be the same one um and somebody like posted that that babeland was hiring and i was like still trying to find jobs in new york and finding it very very hard you know and my bubble was burst by that because i thought like wait i was promised that i would they would get me here but they actually don't um and it wasn't much different finding a job wasn't much different than it was in texas um and so they called me for an interview and i um i went and um i got the job i didn't know anything i didn't know how to turn on a vibrator i'd never Used a vibrator. I. (laughs) How did you get the job? Do you know? (laughs) I think I had a really good interview. I've been told that I'm really good at talking to people and I clearly have communication skills, some. So I think that I was able to. I was really earnest too. I was like, I don't know anything about sex and sexuality, but this could be really good for me, is what something that I think I said in the job. I was like, I actually want to learn this stuff too Um, And I remember being in the interview And the two managers looking at each other And like smiling And they hired me And I started working at the um, Lower East Side location And I did that And then I also was doing fashion Off and on
0: Why, Why do you think Babeland And the Lower East Side location in particular Hired so many trans people? (sighs) <sighs> that's I mean, a good all question. All the businesses
1: around them are not hiring trans no, people, right? That's a what? really good question. I don't know where it came from. I mean, in hindsight, I had no idea what Babeland was. I had actually never heard of Babeland, to be really honest. Um, I had no idea where, who it was, but I mean, the two managers at the time were cis cis women, cis queer women, um and I really couldn't tell you why I I would say that maybe in hindsight there was people around that were pushing for that that's where I met my really good friend Lena who's one of my dearest friends nearest and dearest friends that's where I met Phoenix who's another near dear friend of mine and I, I would say that they are two people who really put a lot of energy into transforming Babeland um and we're probably a part of the, the voices there that were asking to change the way that it was from before.
0: Definitely. Yeah. We have an in interview with Phoenix and the Transworld History Project. Amazing. Um. So what year was it that you got the job oh at Big God. It was like, oh man. So
1: 2014, 2015, 2014? 14. Okay. Yeah. think so yeah because i was still doing fashion and i was still i was working part-time at babeland doing fashion and they were able to yeah i think 2014
0: and what was it like working there
1: it was a trip i learned so much i learned so much about myself i learned so much about my it was my sexual awakening. It was my... It was at a time when my gender was was emerging. My gender expression was emerging. I understood myself to be trans. I started transitioning while I was working there. It... It really propelled me. And I met so many... People that were just on top of their shit. And, like, knew their shit. And... and embodied their stuff and people who saw me and people who still see me. I was really seen there. I was really supported there. My dear friend, Maron, who's very close with still, who's an angel. I met there and called each other sisters, you know, it was, um, and I would say it was meeting all these people there that I started to have more political,
0: What does a political awakening mean for you?
1: For me, it was... When... The word femme was introduced (laughs) into my life. When... People acknowledged my hardness in the way that I go and engage with the world and the way that the world... Um, engages with me and that was held and that was something that was like encouraged about my femme identity my hard femme identity um and the way in which in which I I deeply wanted to see other people that was supported um yeah That was like the, that was the political awakening.
0: What were some of the challenges
1: of working there? Wow. Um, I mean, definitely engaging with the public. It's trans people who have retail jobs and who have jobs in which they're interacting face-to-face with people. It's like, that's really hard work. It's really hard work, especially when you're engaging with something like people's sex, sex and people's sexualities and all of the messiness that's involved with that um, that area in particular I worked nights um, always ex- pretty much exclusively so I was always scheduled on the weekends so in that area on Rivington Street um, is like bars where just like drunk, like drunk mask bros wooing yelling at us from outside, harassing us, uh, prank phone calls, um, being sexually harassed, um, being, you know, physically accosted, you know, just all sorts of messiness. Um, and frankly, I experienced a lot of trans misogyny within the, the company itself. Um, the way that trans bodies were just kind of not acknowledged by the owners um a lot of like you're asking for too much directives from the top um that type of that type of stuff
0: do you remember how how long were you at Bay Blount?
1: I was there for a full year okay and then I was deeply unhappy I was really irritated with the way, the direction that they were going and how like trans women were treated in general and just the race problem within that, that place. Um, and so my friend who, my friend Leah, who was working there, she ended up leaving and to go work at the pleasure chest. And she talked me into... Into going, she was like girl you gotta come here they don't like do xyz thing like over there it's so much better um like they treat you like shit at Bayland. come to like the pleasure chest and so i went and had an interview there and got the job at the west village store
0: what were some of the concrete things that drew you to the pleasure chest
1: there was there seemed to be and this is like widely contested between the the culture just seemed different um there seem to be two babeland and pleasure just have two different approaches um that aren't as distinct as one might think but i would say that there is a tone that's different between the two companies and amongst in the way that you're trained um i remember at the time as i was leaving babeland there was a lot of issues around porn at um babeland and like Half of people wanted to get rid of the porn. Half of people wanted to keep it, and then that started to have like issues around sex workers, um, and like people feeling like all porn is exploitative versus some people who don't feel like it was. Um, These were debates amongst the staff. Amongst the staff, amongst uh, the Amongst the staff, and or- it became conflict with the man- with management.
0: Um, what were the lines of demarcation there They
1: were there was like complaints that like that some of that the porn that was carried at the time was there was racist there was racist porn there was really gross um trans porn that was st- like narratives around like like I don't even remember specifically, but it was, there was like problematic trans porn there. Um, and there was the owners and the retail director at the time were like, we're not getting rid of this porn. And the workers were like, get rid of the porn. It's fucked up. Um, so there was, there was conflict and I left for the pleasure chest, which ended up having way more porn and nobody seemed to have a problem with it. So that was like, I was like, okay, I guess, that's interesting, and um, the the yeah the tone and the way that people talked about sex seemed just different at the pleasure chesting. Like, I trying to argue, say how it's different. Um, I would say it has to do with the branding that the pleasure chest is a sexy place. That's how the pleasure chest brands itself. It's a very like we're sexy while uh, I don't know which led to interactions that seemed more like that when I first started I was like that's a little bit weird but okay I guess that's normal here where it was just like more there was more room for like the public the like public to be a little bit more like push the boundaries with the workers a little bit more and that was more accepted at the pleasure chest than it was at Babeland um but
0: yeah. So after you left Babeland, the unionization effort got underway. Mm-hmm. Did you keep in touch with that? Did you hear much about it as it was going on?
1: I didn't. Um, I didn't even know it was happening when I was there. Um, and then uh, one day, Lena and Phoenix came to visit me at work and bought some stuff, and they were like, let's go outside and talk. How's it been going? And I, at the time, I was having a lot of problems. I was having a lot of conflict with my manager at the time, who's since left. Um, what was this? Huh? When was this? This was two, two years ago. Um, I was having this man was just, there was a lot of conflict. Um, racism, tra- like covert transmisogyny, um, just being in general gaslit when I would make complaints um, and, um, just really struggling to f- have agency in in the workplace. Um, one of the, actually the key differences that I, I, now that I'm thinking about it was that at the pleasure chest, we weren't really encouraged to kick people out, but at Babeland, you could kick somebody out without any question. Like, your coworkers would 100% back you up. But there was a tone that the management had set at the pleasure chest, and it still exists today, which is something that there's conflict around about the ability to actually kick people out. Um, And just, in general, had a lot of conflict. And so um, we talked about it, and they were like, how's it been going? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just, like, really upset at the time. And generally other coworkers were also upset with with a lot of things and seeing a lot of stuff that was happening around us and so they were like do you want to set up a meeting to speak with somebody about what you can do about this and so it's like sure I trusted the two of them and um that is when I met with Pete and Stephanie Excellent. at the RWDSU
0: so two years ago Last month was when Bateland went public with their campaign. Mm-hmm. Do you know if at the point that you were talking with them, they had gone public? Yep. They had already gone public. Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
1: So tell me, uh, uh, had you ever encountered a union before? No, that's the thing. That's the really interesting thing. And it has been a part of my like political consciousness as it is now. Um, Never heard of it. Like, I'd heard of unions. You know, I, I knew about unions in in a, like, pop sense. Um, to me, my association was, like, factory workers, the Midwest, um, farm workers. Um, but nobody in my family had ever been in... I, I think my mom says now that, like, there's a cousin that was in a union or something. Um, but my parents had never been in a union. My siblings had never been in a union. Honestly, unions in Texas it's a uh, it's, rough place to it's a, have a union. It's a very rough place to have a union. Um and I mean, probably the fact that my dad worked in oil and gas and had an office job meant that there was just like probably, you know, like unions aren't that great or something, or we don't need unions. Um so it was a an enormous, enormous um that I felt I was risking I really was didn't know anything um but when I met with Pete um, Pete and Stephanie I, they explained it to me
0: what were your impressions of them they were RWDSU they're, staff they are
1: RWDSU answers? staff they were organizers um I was you know I immediately read them as like you know lefty white people <laughs> Um, they were really earnest and eager, um, in their, the way that they, um, engaged with me, engaged with my body, engaged with the way that they were talking, um, to me about, they were really careful about explaining everything in detail, um, and, yeah, it was, it was very nice. They were very nice, I would Mm -hmm. say yeah um so that's yeah that's when i signed the card i was like holy shit what did i just do um but i texted you know my friends was like okay i did it and this is the moment and yeah do you had they started talking to other workers at that point at the pleasure trust not that Uh i know of
0: and um so what what were the next steps of the campaign and after they connected with you.
1: After they connected with me, we they were like, okay, like let's start. Um, and you know, they explained like the fundamentals of like you know, like nothing that you're doing is you're protected regardless like you have the right like my workers rights basically about that i it's a it's legal for me to talk to a union um that the company doesn't know that i signed a card that it's not a legally binding thing it's or like that i don't have to like suddenly pay dues because i signed a card just like the really key things that there's a lot of misinformation about in terms of the rwdsu itself um and they were that we did this mapping exercise where they were like tell me about all the people that you work with and we're going to scale them from one being the least interested in, in a union to five being very like engaged with you. That's the
0: scale we use in, in, um, in the UAW. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so, um, we did that exercise, which was so cool. And, um, it was a lot of me using my like interpersonal skills and like, very good at reading people and just like plotting the Scorpio. So I'm like all about the like plotting and seeing things. Um, and yeah. So then from there they were like, okay, can you pick one person that you feel like you can reach out to that you feel safe would be, feel safe to reach out to. Um. And then we started and I did. Um. So a big push was to start agitating. And so I started agitating um and it wasn't very hard because everybody was already really agitated we were all exhausted we're a lot of people overworked um we're experienced you know in my time at the pleasure chest i've been physically assaulted i've been spat at i've been sexually assaulted unfortunately i've you want to tell any specific stories about any of those things i mean one of the things is which is so such a a trans it's such at the intersection of transness was it was standing outside of the store it was like it was nighttime in the west village i was closing they usually most of my jobs have always scheduled me at night because i like tend to i like sell well or whatever um And I was standing outside by myself, I guess, checking my phone or just like taking a breather. It was like a couple of minutes before we closed the store. And this guy was walking with a bunch of other dudes and um, stopped to I turned and looked and he had a camera um, up and was going to take my picture. And I I turned my head and I was like, please, no pictures, Uh, which is something that I've experienced for a very long time it's a it's a type of violence that i'm is that i'm very familiar with is this flashes cameras um and something that's actually really triggering for me um so I, i i turned around i said no no i think i probably even said like no fucking pictures or something and just like walked inside well he started yelling and followed me into the store and i was closing with my coworker emma and um and he was like he was like, come back, come back. I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. Um, you don't have to be a bitch like that. Um, and I was just like, come on, dude, we're like closing. I'm really not interested in a photo. And he was like, I like your fucking look. You have a cool fucking look. Why won't you just like relax and let me take your picture? And he was like, you have no idea who I am. I work in f- in fashion. And I was just like standing there. I was just like, what, what do you want? Like just leave. And he hawked a fucking loogie and said, bit in my eye and it was the most it was one of his degradation just like pure di- he had this look of disgust like how like could you say no to me
0: he was entitled
1: entitled very entitled and it was such it was just you know that was just one experience you know amongst all sorts of other things you know daily phone harassment and the inevitable nature of being misgendered every day. Um, I'm not somebody I think at yet that passes. Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, it's always a big question of why one day I don't, why one day I do, um, which I'm sure other trans women can relate to. But, you know, that is a violence that is, it's violent. I mean, violence is multifaceted, right? its It doesn't look like just one thing. Um, and on top of the fact that um, I experience state violence on the regular. My precarity is that I'm a low-wage worker. I rely on ACA, and I go. I rely on doctors at a community health center to not be gatekeepers, yet there always are, and, you know, transitioning... And new York is much better than other places, but it's still, um, not, um, a walk in the fucking park.
0: Um, what were some of the challenges with the relationships of management or behavior of management that led people at the pleasure chest to wanting to
1: Misogyny. Misogyny and racism. Um... I personally experienced and my other coworkers who are of color experienced and one of my coworkers who had been there longer than I had, you know, was just like, this is old shit. You know, he, this person has always been like this. Um,
0: Would this take the form of? preferential mistreatment or Mis- was
1: right, preference, verbal harassment or what there was, was what it um like? covert yeah covert 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 that is the pleasure chest it is a place that misogyny transmisogynoir um and all these other like isms are very covert it's a it's part of the it's a shame to say that it's part of, like, the, the fabric of the place. Um, but, yeah, lots of tones of... Um, I mean, I had been called um, difficult when I would raise... When I would complain. Um, I have been called hard to reach when I would pull away from toxic interactions. I... Um, It was insinuated that I was lazy when I would be... I have chronic health problems. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I'd be accused of being, like, lazy. Or not overtly accused, but it was suggested that I was taking uh, too long of a break when it was afforded to other people. Um, My dress, the way that I dressed, um, oftentimes, like, other people would... AFAB people would be wearing crop tops, and I would wear kind of a crop top, not really, but it would be called into question. Um, Seeing the way dress codes again, dress codes again. Oh, dress codes, fucking hate dress codes. Um, and just seeing the way that um, this particular manager would um relate to people of color that came in, things like, oh, I think that they're stealing. Just really, like, gross shit like that where I'm just like, what? Um, one of my earliest memories of this person was me and my co-worker, Har- um, Harley, working together. and They're black, and we were working together. We finished our task, and we were just kind of standing around like nobody was coming into the store. And this manager comes upstairs and drops a box really loudly on the counter and was like, y'all look like y'all don't have much to do. And we're like, okay, and it was a box of like hundreds of pens. And he was like, I'm going to go on my 30, but I want you to test every single pen. We were like, I, when he walked out the door, I like asked Harley, I was like, is this normal? Like has, and they were so completely confused and were like, he's in one of his moods um and i felt really degraded by that i felt really really degraded and did not sit right with me did not sit right with me the two non white workers who must be just standing around not doing their job need something to do
0: mm. what are uh um, what were what are the racial demographics of the staff okay. uh, how, how okay. many staff are there total how many,
1: how many people staff color? are that's a really good question um Let's see. I think there is, at this point, um, 14 non-management positions. At how many stores? Two stores. The Upper East Side and the West Village. Um, I would actually have to look to verify that number. But um, at the time, it was a different um, demographic. Um, There was, let's see, three non-white workers at the West Village. And... um, the Upper East Side at the time was, like, at least two years ago, was four or five non-white workers. Out of... Um, let's see. Two, two, four, five. Oh, one, two, three, four, five. Um, so actually maybe two non-white workers um, out of five at the Upper East Side location. So now there is, um, at the Upper East Side location, there is now four non-white people, including one manager, out of uh, nine workers. Um, And what was interesting about the union busting campaign was that we were very much, when they launched their union busting campaign after we had unanimously voted, they, were adamant that they were a diverse workplace. They provided a pie chart of us, of uh, allegedly the whole company, and gave us numbers and figures on the diversity quotas that they had fulfilled, and therefore that they were not, as we were claiming, racist.
0: That your experience of racism was just a silliness on your part.
1: Of course that's what racism is right <laughs> so
0: um yeah so you guys when um tell me about the timeline so you're gathering cards we're gathering cards secretly,
1: secretly very secretly right. i was so nervous and this was before this was before orlando which was in my mind is a clear memory and a marker of you know, at first it was kind of, it was a slow process. It was like, I felt, you know, I still, as much as I worked with these people, I wasn't sure who would be, you know, would accidentally out it or, you know, my precarity was, you know, heightened by, by it. And, um, there was a lull, there was a period of a lull where I hadn't, or I hadn't talked to anybody, you know, like I kind of, you know, Pete kind of texted me. They were busy with the Babeland contract in negotiations. And then Orlando happened and my, like, that shifted a lot of stuff for me, the shooting in Orlando. And I experienced a long period of despair and emotional pain. And, um, and that's when I was like, okay, we have to like push for this have to do this like this is world building shit so that's when things started to speed up a lot um i ended up requesting a transfer to the from the west village to the upper east side i was like listen i'm experiencing a lot of violence here in the back of my head i was like this is also a good opportunity to start building there um and it just really quickly actually happened and other people were engaging too and organizing as well so um we it happened pretty quickly. We had two people that were ended up like leaving or being fired, which is a really the context in which um, one person was fired. Aaliyah was is kind of central to actually the organize the the campaign um, central to the anti-black violence that happens and has happened at the pleasure chest, um, which is probably somebody that would be worth talking to. Um, but it started to speed up. It at least in my memory it was like speeding up and the ball was like we were getting really close. Um and then finally we ma- we had there was like one person left and I distinctly remember who that is and I was like I don't know. I don't know what you know what they would vote for. Um but we we, we had the we had the numbers. We had 100% um chance of winning a vote and um we um, voted
0: when, so, um, to go through the national labor relations board, you file the cards. correct. And then it becomes public. Correct. The employer finds out, did they find out before you filed?
1: Nope. They found, they got a phone call allegedly.
0: Uh, when did you file? Do you remember?
1: Oh man. I don't remember the filing date. I should remember that. I really don't remember the filing date. Do you know? I don't. Oh, I, I okay. haven't spoken to enough pleasure chess workers yeah. yet. And then
0: uh, uh, about five weeks later, there's an election. Yes. And that gives them a lot of chance to harass you all.
1: Yes. Harassment. Like, exactly. Like, what that is, form did that take? Uh, it's called union busting, <laughs> as I came to learn. They hired
0: an evil law firm. They,
1: so they lawyered... The fuck up, they got Jackson Lewis. um I remember Pete um having a being in a meeting with Pete and being like, "Oh, we just found out who is going to represent the pleasure chess, and he showed us the papers um and it was Jackson Lewis. I had no idea who Jackson Lewis was. I was like, "Ooh, that's really bad, but also I was like, "Who is that <laughs> And he was just like it's it they're 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 mean and they're scary, and they win um. And I was like big gulp. Um, I was like okay, um, and then they um, also on top of that hired a um, private um, un- union busting firm. Um, I forget the name of uh, name of them, but this man, God, I erased his name from my memory. He came. He was he um, was actually um, Peruvian man. Um, Definitely clocked him as a, just a very conservative, probably right wing, um, guy. Um, and at this point they had no idea. Um, in hindsight, I found out that they thought that all of the, none of the West Village was interested and they thought because I was in the Upper East Side and I had been a part of so many complaint processes. Um, within the company and had been had a lot of conflict with my managers and had been very vocal so they they kind of conden they they thought that the east upper east side was where all the problems were um but we were subject to this these mandatory meetings um one of the things that was really and it was such a i was just like y'all are fools for doing that you're fools because it really, actually, that is what the, those mandatory meetings, what was really cemented all of us together. Um, we went through this amazing training that Stephanie and Pete had, had built together. Um, and this, at this point, um, Kim Ortiz had been added to, um, our organ- who is um, an organizer with the RWDSU, had been added um, onto it. And they, um, it was, a, they called it an inoculation meeting in which they trained us on what to expect and what to hear. They had this bingo game that we played, and they played recordings of of union busting meetings, and we had to bingo all of the like classics of the the union busting campaigns, like you're gonna have to pay six times your salary and dues, and um, a lot of. Th- shit like as soon as you sign your um union card you're that's when you start paying your union dues which is not true for the RWDSU um there was um a lot of mythology around like it's going to be impossible to talk to your managers management's not going to be allowed to talk to you um you're going to sink the company um just a, just the classics from what I understand of, of most union investing campaigns and so they, we were really really well prepared um, that is something that Pete and Stephanie really nailed in terms of, of, of this campaign was making sure that they could not scare us out of it um, and they didn't. Um, one of the highlights of the meeting though that was really a moment in which I like audibly was just like what um, was this guy he was like telling us over and over like really condescending learn your history know your history i'm not trying to scare you but here's the really scary part and brought up ronald reagan just and the airport workers that had um gone on strike during the reagan years and framed it in this way of like poor ronald reagan and I was, like, so unbelievably, like, I literally think I, I remember being like, what? And furious. I was furious. I was like, you father fucker. Like, you are not about to bring up Reagan to a room full of queer people. Like, how dare you? Um, so I we actually lodged a complaint with Sarah uh, with Sarah Tomchison who is the director of retail um she's right under the, o- the owner of the company there's only them two who basically run the company and I remember telling her in person I was like this who have you brought who have you subject because they the whole um way that it was played out was that we are gonna leave the room as the owner and Sarah we're, Brian and Sarah were like we're gonna leave the room and he's going to be able to tell you without us being here, like everything you need to know. And I went up to Sarah afterwards and I was like, he brought up fucking Ronald Reagan. And she literally was like, Oh Jesus Christ. And was just like, she fucking knew. She knew. She knew she had messed up. This guy like n- non-consensually like touched one of my fam co-workers knee in this like really fucking sleazy, gross, way um i ended up talking to him one-on-one about his daughter and how his i remind him of his daughter which was just so fucking creepy i just and he was just like she's very liberal like you you know you kids are very liberal thinking but y'all are so confused with this very content. I feel you bad learned. for Yeah. <laughs>
0: you love Ronald Reagan, just like I do. Just give it a year. Right.
1: <laughs> like, right. When the... you're not a child anymore. <laughs> and I think his whole narrative was that he used to, like, work for unions, right? I think that's the whole thing about people who do these things is they actually used to be people who, who, who flipped and want to make money. And so I'm sure he did. I'm sure he, like, was, like, you know what? This Ronald Reagan guy isn't so bad. Trickle, <laughs> trickle economics, and the, the context of him being Peruvian. I still, to this day, wonder if Brian and Sarah specifically picked him because he was a man of color. I really do. Peru has a huge fascist. Movement. I, I, yeah, and but it's just it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I wonder how that process of him being handpicked. Played out like okay, they're not gonna. They knew enough to. They knew that they couldn't send a white guy. I know that because one of the main things that Sarah and Brian had said was they they um in one of the beginning of the first meetings that they had is, Sarah got up and she said, "I understand that I am a white queer femme." Uh, blah 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 blah, and Brian was like, "I also understand that I am a white gay man, cis gay man."
0: So they were clued in that, like, racial resentments are were a big part of yes. the organizing. And they were sort of wanting to, like, reassure people. They were on board with some sort of racial consciousness.
1: And this is after the election. Right.
0: One so of they the... knew there was universal support for the
1: union. Absolutely. They I, knew I... you
0: all were strong.
1: At least in the Upper East Side. and. In... I found out later that they thought that the West Village had wanted nothing to do with it. I don't know why, even though they
0: had all voted for
1: it. this was before the election okay. this before, is this yeah. is the this this is the right. union busting yes yeah, and so this is after i'm sorry the the presidential election
0: oh I see, I see okay,
1: so you know, Donald Trump had just won, and we were all reeling um. Sarah had sent out this long email. Oh, that tells us the date of when. Roughly. Yeah, roughly. Right. right. Um, Sarah sent out this long email. And it's that she signed it in solidarity. Sarah. They rolled out a... And this is something that is so key to this... to organizing queer workers and organizing at the pleasure chest was they rolled out this campaign for the company which was resist it was red uh rainbow letters resist the pleasure chest leg logo was made up of queer leaders of alice walker miss major ellen DeGeneres was like added into this list bell hooks Bell fucking Hooks, is name is in this pleasure. The most neoliberal, that is the essence of the pleasure chest. That that campaign was come here, shop the resistance. Bell Hooks in our logo. And Alice Walker in our logo. And Miss Major in our logo. It's grotesque. I was floored. And to this day, I'm never going to... That is that is the the core. The visual core of so-called feminist sex shop um, places, as well as startup cultures in gen- uh, startup culture in general. This crass appropriation of radical legacies in a way to sell. Absolutely. And meanwhile, twelve fifty an hour starting wage for a worker in the upper east side.
0: So you all filed, Trump was elected, they rolled out this absurd campaign, you had they, they brought in a union buster, they you had mandatory meetings. Then you had a vote. You had unanimous support.
1: Unanimous support. One person didn't vote at all, which is, to this day, it's not important. But it's still considered a unanimous vote, according to the organizers. Of course. every Everybody said yes.
0: And what was their reaction? I mean, they, I imagine that was a bit of a shock to them, <laughs> if they had it misjudged. It was the, so great. My mom had actually
1: or... flown into into town. Um Because she, I mean, she had known that I was doing this for... She was proud of you. She, Yeah, she was really proud of me. Um, She flew into town. I had invested so much energy and resources into into this. And um, it was so dramatic. There was a literal live count. Um, We all crowded into the basement, the workshop space in the Upper East Side. And the NLRB agent, yes, yes. Yes. This is
0: how many workers? 14? 14, yeah, okay. together.
1: Um, and crowded into the basement and this NLRB agent. Yes, after yes, after yes, after yes. And just the most elated feeling. I cried. I, my mom held me. It was just so special because we did that. We or, organized across... You know, the shit that makes organizing so hard across all these intersections of privilege and oppression, we all voted yes, which is momentous. And I I do believe that it's historic.
0: How did you all do that, do you think? Built that kind of solidarity?
1: (sighs) How did we do that? I mean, there were so many conversations happening there were so many namings and what I mean by that is like saying that something was racist and a push for the white folks around us to name that um and from what I understand that's that's like something a part of the labor movement in general that's a struggle is like how to organize through race and class stuff and being, I think that there was a tone, a, at least on, from what I was trying to do, about being explicit about what we're dealing with. And that... And being uh, accountable to each other and being accountable in the sense that, like, we walk the walk. We don't just perform our politics. When we say that we're anti-racist, we mean that we're anti-racist. Um, and I mean... There is. There was at the time. There was so much happening globally. Everybody was shook, and we. I think we all understood that. We are going to play a part in in making something better possible.
0: And you're going to be the actual resistance.
1: <laughs> right, right. The actual resistance. Um, there was a lot of sharing of information. Um, one of the bell hooks's um essay desire eating the other is essential reading for understanding the pleasure chest and understanding babeland um and which she talks about everything that is the pleasure chest where um the promise of of meeting the other and how our bodies are othered in society is racialized bodies, trans bodies, racialized, trans bodies. Um, and that the pleasure chest is this invitation to come play out your racist, sexist, misogynistic desires. Um, another, um, Sarah Ahmed, who, um, was really, um, her work on, um, feminist complaint, um, was really, like, really shifted the way that I, like, understood, like, complaint in the workplace. And that, um, you come to understand, um, your place within an institution via, like, the way that the institution handles a complaint. Which just, like, blew my fucking mind. Because I had experienced, you know, I lodged so many complaints in this process of, like, trying to be heard and trying to seen and trying to have, like, um, accountability and just experiencing the institute, like, the way that the institution wanted to, like, suppress that in the way that other people did. Um, so there was a lot of, like, literature sharing, zine sharing. Um, with, I mean, some of my coworkers are, are super left, so that was really helpful. And, and providing, like, language and context for those that maybe who wouldn't necessarily identify as far-left. Or... Um, memes, sharing, like, leftist memes was so helpful in this, like, group chat that we were in. Um, femme for femme memes were, 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 like, widely circulated amongst us. Um, yeah. How many other
0: trans workers were there?
1: Let's see, um um four others Did
0: um you all share some experience? Him?
1: Um, so l- something that happened in this process was you know, one of my friends, she's a black trans woman who's incredible. Um, was able to get her a job, like, whatever really pushed and advocated for her job, for her to get a job, but she ended up experiencing so much violence, so much misogynoir, just like, pure misogynoir, um, at the Upper East Side location, um, which just drove, like, pushed, it pushed her out of that place. Um... There's another trans mask coworker of mine who's a man of color um, and who's very vocal about, you know, that we have very different experiences of the workplace, you know, his his privileges definitely as like some as a mask person. Masculinity seems to be like a thing that gets you a pass with management. Um, And another uh, trans friend of mine, she ended up leaving um, just because. own you know mental health stuff so i'm the only trans woman that works there now
0: so uh you won the vote and you've been in contract negotiations for a long time yeah
1: for almost a freaking year um
0: what are you fighting for
1: yeah what are we fighting for so um There, uh, we have asked for a, an outside privilege and boundaries training, which is in the hopes that, um, which would be a mandatory meeting for both management and staff, um, which would is going in the direction of shifting the culture and shifting, like moving the fabric around a little bit at the pleasure chest where, um, you know, privilege is a material aspect of the workplace. You know, who gets to make high sales? Who gets rewarded for making high sales? Um, who, um, in the way that management interacts privilege and power are enormous, you know, problems within the institution. So we've asked for this to, in, in, in the vein, uh, hoping to kind of address those problems and create processes that are like more accountable. Um, we've asked for, um, self-defense trainings. Um, you know, I've, like I was saying earlier, have been like physically assaulted. Other people have been physically accosted. You know, uh, uh it makes sense for sex shop workers to have some basic self-defense. Why
0: would they ever oppose these things? Trainings um, are neither expensive nor make it impossible to manage business. The,
1: they do not see it as being related to, is what they have said. It is not related to our workplace and the cost. I distinctly remember Brian Robinson saying, this has cost me a lot. Shaming us for doing this. I'm sure it has. I mean, Jackson Lewis, those people make, and the the lawyer that represents them is trying to become a partner in the firm. So he must be very, very, very I mean, I'm expensive. I'm sure
0: he must spend far more on the lawyer fighting these trainings than the trainings could ever cause.
1: Absolutely. Um, and one of the most interesting aspects of it is that Brian refuses to even say the word privilege. He won't even say a privilege and boundaries training. He'll say a boundary training. And what we have said in our contract is that um, the privilege training will be coming from a black intersectional feminist... Um, angle, that, that That's essential to the training itself. Not a word. Refuses. Refuses to even say the word privilege. I've asked him. I said, why can't you say the word privilege? He said, because I'm not.
0: So in his mind, being gay? Perhaps. Or a human? Or who knows And
1: I mean who knows I think that I mean Brian is somebody who I would say grew up I mean he's very wealthy his family has property money um, he has properties across the US lives in Santa Monica I you know he, two stores in Chicago a huge store in LA two stores in New York like you all
0: pleasure chest all
1: pleasure stores. chest all pleasure chest
0: stores is there a, have you guys connected with the workers at the other stores? I'd rather not say. Okay. No problem. <laughs> so um, these trainings, what else so, have you been um,
1: for? Privilege and boundaries training, self-defense trainings, um, and adequate staffing. Um, so there is so many times that people, when, when things have happened in the store, like assaults, and verbal harassment, and physical harassment, and sexual harassment, it's because people are left on the floor alone. I mean, a lot of my work experience at the pleasure chest has been just me by myself on the sales floor and other people have similar experiences. Um, so we've asked for at least a minimum of three people scheduled on the sales floor at all times so that leaves room for breaks so that if somebody goes on a break, they're not left for 30 minutes on the sales floor by themselves So that there's another person on the sales floor. Um, they have not hired. We are under currently, as we speak, as of today, we are understaffed. Um, they refuse to acknowledge that we're understaffed Um, people are working a lot Um, they just recently hired one person as a part time shipping and receiving position Um, but there was enormous um, conflict during contract negotiations around allowing um, a shipping and receiving person to be in the bargaining unit and then they ended up closing the, the shipping and receiving department that they were trying to build in New York and kept it in, in Los Angeles, which was very interesting. Um, and we have initially, we've just recently, um, a, about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, um, laid out our economic proposal. So generally how it works is the contract negotiations are non- non-economic agreements, so like grievance, arbitration. We've obviously asked for a fair like, uh, grievance process, um, People have been fired for so many different fucked up reasons and we're trying to restructure that where there's a more fair and balanced way of doing that um, and who gets to decide that and whatnot. Um, And we've just recently laid out our economic plan, which would be like our sick time, our pay and insurance. Um, Where you get health care. Huh?
0: Will you get decent health care?
1: Um, well, hopefully, that's the goal <laughs> to get decent health care. Um, we were like looking, we looked at the what Pleasure Chest offers versus what the union offers. The union offers just, it's better in they, general.
0: Right, they have a health plan. They have a health plan plan,
1: um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is, to my knowledge, trans, that covers trans inclusive um, stuff like hormone replacement therapy stuff. They um,
0: told me they sat down and read it very carefully around trans stuff before they started the campaign. Absolutely. Learned,
1: yeah absolutely. Um, so the company to their credit doesn't have the worst insurance in the world. Um, but I think pretty much only middle management to upper management is on the healthcare plan and there may be a, a couple of well actually the people that would have been on it are now part of middle, middle management. Um, are on there, on the company's existing healthcare care plan. Um, but we are asking, you know, the Fight for 15 campaign is, is so important and iconic and, and, and great. Um, but we decided to push for more um, because we believe that we can get more. Um, so um, we are in the high teen, asking for the high teens, pushing into the 20s, um, for a starting wage at the pleasure chest. And then, um, the longer you've worked there, obviously the more benefits, just like other unions, um, the more pay, I mean, that you would accrue, um, which is exciting. And do, is, um, scheduling uh, much of
0: a problem for you all to get enough hours?
1: Um, so we, something that was different about Babeland versus the pleasure chest that, is the pleasure chest has always offered full-time hours while Babeland mm-hmm. never did. So that was actually one of the aspects that was appealing when I moved was that I can actually get full-time hours here. Um, The issue with it is staffing, is that people who have been hired, I've seen three times now, people who've been starting off as pretty much part-time have consistently been asked to work full-time hours. Um, And then we're still having issues with getting adequate staffing. So scheduling wasn't one of the main focuses for staff at the Pleasure Chest, as it was an important aspect of of Babeland.
0: Uh and you mentioned a role of left politics in <laughs> the some of the workers being uh, very left and uh sort of that contribution. What are some of the political currents that have informed or enriched your the
1: work? I would say black feminist thinking i mean bell hooks has is bell hooks's work is, is is circulated um I would say that there's definitely a communist socialist undercurrent burgeoning um
0: seems like there's a developing community amongst queer workers i would i would communist a- politics
1: yeah, I would absolutely say that um the DSA recently through their support online on Twitter to our organizing efforts, which was really sweet of them. Um, But yeah, I would, I would, yeah. It's, it's still a developing process. Of course. Yeah. It's always going to be right. Okay.
0: And how has it changed your politics? Oh shit.
1: I mean, the big question is where do you go from here in the sense of how I see my, how I've come to understand myself as a worker and my role in my workplace, as well as my role in community. Um, I, the thought of like even leaving the pleasure chest is so interesting. Cause I'm like, how could I go, go to any other type of workplace that doesn't have, have this. um, the practice of my politics in this workplace actually doing my politics in the workplace showing up um is was essential to that I think it's really easy to perform things but like who's gonna have your back when you're just performing but when they're
0: high stakes struggles right you learn who has your back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: yeah. And one thing I've thought about is um, a lot of queer politics uh, involves some deciding who's, who's uh, politically right on enough and who's politically problematic. Oh, God, yeah. But union politics is more about trying to figure out how to win over even the problematic people. Right, exactly. <laughs> Is there a, how did you guys grapple with that tension? You know, like, like the union politics, you know, I, I sometimes tend towards conservatism as a result, like the lowest common denominator. Right. But other times tend towards, like, trying to win people over to a politics that they might not initially be totally on board with. right. Um, and so it's a like it's a different way of thinking about your allies. Like you you know, you know who you need on your side right before you even start, and they're not necessarily the people you like the most always.
1: Right. I mean, wow, that is so accurate. For I mean, even t- till recently of allyship performance, um, and. workplace that we we all work in i think what's interesting though and like why there seems to be a little bit of a left-leaning um current with like babeland and the pleasure chest is kind of like the nature of the work you know it's coming from a place of like none of us were given this information and we had to put in the work to get access to the information and to understand how to talk about the information so the people that we work with do have a critic like have critical thinking skills of course um i i work with really smart people who are their intellect is unrecognized because they're low-wage workers right um but i in general there's this tone and a willingness at the workplace to Because a lot of times we're dealing with things that we don't understand about sex and sexuality and power. And I think that there's a general, a very general sense of like, I, at its best, it's I don't understand this, but I want to know more. Because we're constantly having to do that for the work that we do. Um, we're, We're constantly having to meet people where they're at in their own process and journey of like their sex and sexuality. So I think that there's this critical understanding that like, we also are going through that as well. Um, Which is, I think unique to, to like places like Babeland and the pleasure chest. You have to be a really fucking smart person to do the job that we do. (laughs) To, to, to just meet somebody and understand all these intersections that they're coming from and to be able to encapsulate and meet them where they're at and mirror their language. We have, the, those are skills that are essential to, to, to political work, I believe. So, so it makes good militants. Huh? It
0: makes for good militants. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah.
0: Where, what do you see as the, as the future of trans movements, like coming out of this work in your own transformation, politicization? In the currents that you've seen developing in the world?
1: Well, first, we have to organize. We need to organize pretty quickly. I think, I mean, people have been organizing for crisis management and all sorts of things for much longer than I've been alive, but to, to me, I see what's happening across the U.S. with this fucking government and a lot of people are scared um, and what is that like Organizers saying like don't despair organize <laughs> um, but what I see is that we have to truly like what has happened at the pleasure test needs to happen across New York, across the state and across the country and globally we're as connected as we've ever been as trans people um, I think we have to I personally think that I have to make a more global connection to the to the siblings um, and that we have to come from a place that we understand that we're all at intersections of power and privilege and we can truly truly move in a direction that is acknowledging that so even amongst our own community there's a lot of dis- disparate experiences. I mean, we live in a time where there's like not to be corny, but like there's somebody like Hari Neff and there's somebody like Caitlyn Jenner. And then there's, you know, there's somebody like Janet mock. And there's somebody like these, these people who inhabit the U S consciousness. Um, and we have to organize for better lives for, like, within our own small communities. Um, I mean, we are, like, what is it, like, three times less likely to be employed. Um, How do we... I mean, like, I'm just, like, the the only way that we can get jobs is, in my head, is what I'm understanding is, like, we have to have strong unions. We have to have, like, we have to build the security itself, like, the job security itself. We have to change these institutions. We have to change the academy. We have to change, you know, like, these jobs that we work at. um, In order to, like, open, force open that shit. We have to force it open. It's not going to just be given to us. Especially now. Um, And something that I think that we have to really critically, and something that I'm critically thinking about, is scarcity. Scarcity. And the myths around scarcity, and what that does to us as a community. The mythologies of scarcity are—it's like so powerful, so powerful—and it makes people act in ways that, you know, we don't think is us. But scarcity does really fucked up things to our heads.
0: What is thinking beyond scarcity? Oh God.
1: Thinking beyond scarcity, that's a really good question. I think inhabiting our possibilities, being possibility models. I mean, I'm 27 and there's like so many cute little trans kids becoming. Um, I was recently talking to a friend and they're like doing work with trans youth and like helping them get their name changed and stuff and how incredible of an experience that was for, for them to have proximity to, like, young trans kids who are, like, in schools, like, in primary schools and middle schools and high schools. Um, and, um, like, maybe moving as who, maybe for myself, at least, it's moving away from, like, these ideas of being a role model, but more of a possibility model. Maybe that's, that's an aspect of moving beyond scarcity. I haven't fully figured it out yet.
0: Let us know when you do. I
1: will. I'll tweet it out. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Um, anything else you'd like to share in this lovely oral history?
1: <laughs> um, wow. I guess I would say that I feel enormously proud of what's happened at the pleasure Chest. I... I'm so proud of my coworkers who showed up. I'm so proud of myself for showing up. Um and I'm so excited to see the the world building shit. I'm so excited to see it. Beautifully said.